It's Monday, July 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump had another history-making moment over the weekend as he became the first sitting president to step into North Korea. Trump shook hands with Kim Jong-un, and the two agreed to revive stall talks about denuclearization. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this, what happened at the G20, and Senator Kamala Harris surging in the polls. Next, after a year-long investigation that became the largest sex crimes inquiry involving a single person in LAPD history, George Tyndall, the gynecologist accused of sexual misconduct toward hundreds of USC students, was arrested and charged last week with more than two dozen felonies. Brianna Sachs, former USC student and BuzzFeed news reporter, joins us for all the details that led to his arrest. Finally, we are in a global plastic crisis of our own making. Plastics made from oil and natural gas have become part of our daily lives from cell phones to shipping materials and more. But the problem is we use many plastics only once, then discard them. And it is showing up in our oceans, mountain peaks, and our food. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios, joins us for more on our plastic planet. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We went and met at the line, and in meeting at the line, I said, would you like me to come across? He said, I would be so honored. And that's the way it worked out. I didn't know really what he was going to say, uh, but it was my honor to do it. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We had a uh, another moment of history with President Trump and Kim Jong-un. They met at the demilitarized zone on Sunday. They agreed to revive talks to hopefully denuclearize the Korean peninsula there. But it was just a, a big moment, made-for-TV moment, when uh, the president stepped over the line with Chairman Kim there. What, what happened? President Trump likes to talk about the things that he does in the White House as being the biggest or the most or the greatest first in history. But this really was one for the history books, the first president since the war on the Korean Peninsula, since the division of North and South Korea to step into North Korea. He made history when he took that step across the border from the DMZ. And this is a sign that we could see those talks move forward. This is still a really hard and difficult thing for Trump's administration to get done. We've seen over the last two years that it can fall apart very easily. And so we're long way from having an agreement, but there are signs that the talks could open again and maybe get us closer to some type of resolution. How did this all get kicked off? Because the president sent a tweet just kind of out there and said, hey, let's have a meeting tomorrow or something. It was like from one day to the next and they were able to get it all done, right? So it's not unusual, we should note, for presidents, U.S. presidents, to visit the DMZ. President Obama went there. Previous presidents have visited that region, which, if, you're, if your listeners aren't familiar, is the space between North and South Korea that is neither country, sort of a, a neutral ground there in the middle. This visit by President Trump had been in the works for quite some time. It was not a surprise that he was visiting there. And, and we understand that there was some discussions about Leader Kim meeting him there before Hand. The tweet was sort of a very public showing of that interest, but there were back channels, there were diplomatic channels being worked to arrive at that at that meeting. History is going to judge this on whether 
or not. They are able to denuclearize the area and just see what happens. North Korea wants to be relieved of sanctions before they go forward. So it is kind of this uh, push and pull game that they're going to be playing for a long time. But for the meantime, the optics were there and that handshake again and stepping over the line. It's very important. One of the other side stories that I was actually really appreciated was the new White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham. There was this kind of little scuffle between the North Korean security and members of the U.S. press pool. They were trying to get into the room so they can take pictures and video of Chairman Kim and President Trump, and they weren't letting them through. So Stephanie Grisham pushes some people aside. They said she might have got a couple bruises in the thing, and she's you can see a video of her yelling, go, go, and then... The video runs in and they get into the room where the president and, and, and Kim are sitting. So good for her for kind of being very forceful as she had to be there. A little endearing herself to the press corps early on in the job. She was a little aggressive before. And I think that we've we wondered about how her aggression was going to play out. But it, at least for now, it, it looks like it's going to be helpful for the press and maybe not directed at them. The other thing that happened over the weekend was the whole reason why the president went out there was for the G20 summit, was going to be working on trying to get something going to take care of this trade war that we're going through with China. Nothing really came out of that except to say that they are restarting negotiations again. They fell apart a little bit ago. There's not going to be a new round of sanctions, but everything else is kind of still in place. This is another thing that we have seen President Trump act like would be really easy to get done. He would just send someone over to negotiate. The Chinese would say, sure, and then there would be a trade deal. But it, it's not that easy. It is progress now to see those talks reopen. There are real ramifications for this trade war. It is hurting America farmers. It's hurting consumers who are having to pay more for goods than they were before. And, you know, the president sort of said, oh, the world leaders are congratulating me on my economy. Not everyone else's economy is doing so well. But he seems to miss the fact that if everyone else's economy starts doing badly, it can have effects on the American economy. And this is just another strain on the U.S. economy, even if it's not causing widespread ramifications just yet. But reopening talks is is a step towards getting some type of resolution and figuring this out much later than than I think the president thought it would take to come to some type of resolution. Obviously, these two big issues are very important for the country and for the world and the economies that are all involved in all this. But this is also very important for the president's reelection bid, the deal maker. He has to get some of these things done. The denuclearization angle, that's going to take a while. We already know that. But working on trade, you know, is something that I mean, I'm assuming will impact his reelection if he doesn't get it done. When I go out and I talk to voters, particularly in the Midwest, voters who support the president, they tell me, look, I'm willing to endure a little bit of pain. I'm willing to suffer a little bit because we think Trump has the right goals in mind that he's going to stick it to China. He's going to get us a better trade deal. Things are going to be better at the end of the day. And so the pain is worth it. But if he can never get to that deal and we're sitting here a year from now and the economy is doing worse, it's going to be very difficult to make that re-election argument. I have no doubt his opponents will say, you claim to be a deal maker and you haven't made any deals. And that's a real liability for him on election day. The Democratic debate that happened last week, Senator Kamala Harris is the big winner of the whole two-night extravaganza. She rose in the polls. She went up six points. I think she's tied for third now with Elizabeth Warren. This is according to a morning consult poll. And uh Joe Biden, he lost about five points, still remains in the top. But Senator Kamala Harris also had kind of a dust up over the weekend where 
there was some false claims on her race. All of the 2020 Democrats were helping stick up for her. What happened there? We saw President Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr., retweeted and then deleted a tweet from sort of an alt-right figure asserting that Kamala Harris wasn't a Black American. And for those that don't know her family's story, her father was Jamaican and Black and her mother Indian. So she sort of grew up in America as a Black woman, although not the traditional African-American in the sense that we would use as someone descendant of slaves that no less made her Black, that no less made her have a Black woman's experience as she detailed on the debate stage about what it was like to be bused to school. But this was like an attempt to undermine her. And we saw all of her Democratic colleagues or rivals really rush to her defense. They said this was akin to birtherism, that this was racism, and really go after Republicans for any suggestion that Kamala Harris is not a, bl- a Black woman. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It sickens me to my core that this could have been prevented, not only for me, but for the other women here with me in this room and for the others, hundreds of others outside these walls. Joining us now is Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed news reporter. USC has not been having uh, much of a good time recently. They've just been in the news for all the wrong reasons. The latest that we have is this former USC gynecologist named George Tyndall, who was finally arrested and charged for all of the misdeeds he was doing there while he was practicing at USC. Brianna, start us off. What happened? What was he doing? And what are the charges now? There were 16 former patients of his who came forward who they were able to corroborate the accounts of for sexual misconduct. There's 29 charges and they're all related to those 16 women who saw Dr. Tyndall, who is USC's only full-time gynecologist for like over 30 years. So he saw like thousands of students and like female patients and he was has been accused by hundreds of, of women of you know inappropriate touching racially inappropriate sexually inappropriate comments like taking photos of them under the guise of professional like you know medical treatment just being like all around really inappropriate and sexually abusive yeah. I mean, this is the cap to a year-long investigation that the LAPD was doing. They said it was the largest sex crimes inquiry involving a single suspect in their history. The LA Times, when they broke the story, they started getting more word, people coming forward, saying that they had fallen victim to George Tyndall also. And they got between 400 and 500 people coming forward on this. So he he had been doing this for so many years. More than 500 women. And I, you know, I interviewed them. So I went to USC, actually, and one of the reporters who broke the story is my grad school colleague. So it's been kind of crazy interviewing people I know who went and saw him. And when the story came out, it was difficult because a lot of these students, like, you know, you're like 18, 19, young. They didn't know what had happened to them was wrong. Right. So that's how he really, I think, was able to get away for so long, despite the fact that there had been reports made against him. And finally, there was a nurse or an assistant reported him to a, a, a mental health facility or clinic or something. Yeah, that, I, I like, actually have that part. It was a nurse. Her name was Cindy Gilbert. She was frustrated by the inaction of the administration because they had been reporting things about him since as far back as the 90s, but he was allowed to practice uh, until 2016. And that's when Cindy Gilbert was frustrated by this. She complained to a campus rape crisis center counselor. And even still, they put him on paid leave at that point. It wasn't until a year later that they brokered some type of deal where he could leave with a financial payout, a clean record with a state medical board. 
I mean, it was just insane the lengths that they went to to let him off scot-free at, at the time. Yeah. It made USC look really bad. He, When LA Times still broke the story, he still had his like state medical license, like he could still practice. So the 16 women saw him between 2009 and, and 2016, like just really two months before USC banned him from the Student Health Center. And then shortly after that, quietly let him go with the payout. During their investigation, the detectives, they assigned 12 full-time detectives, which was like most of their sexual assault force. And they went to more than 16 states to conduct these interviews in person. And during that time, they found out that he, you know, and they raided his house, that he had had all these photos and videos that had not been reported before of women in compromising positions and they had to review like I think like thousands of hours of this content so he really was doing a lot more than originally reported is what the, the investigators said. Yeah part of that they the digital analysis of hard drives that he had they said they had reviewed over 1,000 videos he described as homemade sex tapes that were filmed in the Philippines I mean there's just a ton of stuff there investigators you mentioned yeah. the man hours that they put into it they even consulted experts to understand how the gynecologist behavior differed from legitimate care. As you mentioned, a lot of these women were very young at the time. They didn't really know what was going on. It might have been some of their first exams that they were having. He's the doctor. They wouldn't question it at that point. Yeah. So what he would do a lot of the time was he would digitally penetrate women unnecessarily. He would use gloves. He would touch them inappropriately when they didn't really need that for like exams. Like if they were just going in for birth control or something, say, well, I'm going to, you know, check you out in the, in this way. There have, you know, been reports that he also specifically targeted Asian students. That was like another angle of the investigation that was disturbing. And also because for a lot of these students, the USC has like the highest population of foreign students. This is like their first time in the U.S., like they might, yeah. you know, just need to go get a checkup and they might just think that that's how the U.S. did these types of exams. Like, how would they know any better? The crazy aspect of this, too, was when they arrested him, he had a loaded gun on his person when he was, like, walking out of his house. So that was kind of an aspect of, of this. And, you know, he's unequivocally denied that he's done anything wrong. He's made statements that he loved his work and only acted in the best interest of his patient. His attorney still says he did nothing wrong. So it's really disturbing situation. It really is. Yeah. Even when the cops went to go grab him, he uh, complained. He had the gun on him. He complained of chest pains and they took him to a nearby hospital for treatment. His bail right now is set at 2.1 million. So we'll see how this story progresses. Brianna Sachs, BuzzFeed News reporter. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. The plastics that we use, be it something in our cell phone, be it in our car, in a plane, that stuff comes from the petrochemical industry. Joining us now is Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. We're going to be talking about the global plastics crisis that we are experiencing right now. And even in the United States, it's really bad. One of my favorite stories that came out last week, because I love when studies put things into perspectives and the consumption of plastic right now has become unavoidable in recent years. People are consuming, according to this analysis by the World Wildlife Fund that was carried out in Australia, people are consuming about five grams of plastic every week which is the equivalent of a credit card. And you're getting this through drinking both bottled and tap water. The next things you get it from are eating shellfish, drinking beer, and even salt. So these microplastics are all over the place. But we've run into this global crisis with recycling, with single-use plastic items. 
Tell us a little bit about this. We've seen a surge in plastic use since the 1950s, really. It's especially become apparent now the consequences of not having anywhere to put this stuff and the fact that plastics really, most plastics can't be broken down very quickly, if at all. They get broken down into smaller and smaller bits of plastic known as microplastic. But everywhere you look in the world... So in the past couple of years, they've found plastic at the deepest points in the ocean, at the most remote points in the ocean, which are two different places. They found them at the top of mountains in Europe, which had no industrial source nearby. And we're increasingly aware that we are probably all ingesting plastic in the course of our everyday lives. And we don't really know what the consequences of this are for us or the consequences for wildlife. But we know that we are at this point where there's more consumer activism about it, there's more awareness about it, and there needs to be some government action about it as well. One of the things that you wrote in your article, as we all know that plastic is is an integral part of our lives from every, you know everything that we use, our cell phones, shipping materials, medical devices, but they're being made from oil and natural gases, or those are byproducts of the process of making plastic. Can you explain that a little bit? The plastics that we use, be it something in our cell phone, be it in our car, in a plane, or in a plastic bag that you use and feel badly about using at a store, that stuff comes from the petrochemical industry. So that is a big growing part of the business for the oil and gas industry. As the oil and gas industry is looking towards the future and they're seeing the possibility that they may not be able to burn everything that they have due to concerns around climate change, they're thinking, okay, well, maybe our future is more and more in plastics because there are particular forms of oil and natural gas products that are particularly conducive through different industrial processes, basically putting them in the factory, breaking them down into certain chemical components and forming plastics from them. This is a big part of the industry's bet for the future, which is part of the reason why industry is saying, no, 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 this is a recycling problem. We need better recycling and we need to just use this stuff better. But They'll be able to use more. And consumer groups, environmental groups are saying, no, we need to be cutting use and cutting demand. Like, why do we need to have plastic straws in the first place? Why do we need to have plastic forks? Why are we using all this stuff once and throwing it away? You mentioned recycling problem in 2018. China banned most plastics headed for its recycling processors. And it shut down all of the exports, the recycling exports that we were sending out there, making our waste problem a lot bigger. Why did China decide to stop taking our plastic recycling? There's a few reasons behind it. Part of it is that it was becoming less and less profitable for them. Part of it, too, was they were under increasing pressure from within the country, so from their own people, to clean up their act. And these facilities, which were importing huge amounts of waste from the U.S., and other countries were not exactly the cleanest places. And they began to question, well, if we aren't recycling this to the fullest extent 
And if a lot of this is going over to some of it was even going over to criminal enterprises, this was a very dirty industry, a very fuel intensive industry to power. They decided that they don't really need to be the world's trash bin anymore. And part of cleaning up China means saying no to that stuff. So instead of going there, the market for recycling is shifting more even toward more illicit enterprises where stuff is being shipped to Malaysia and other countries with fewer safeguards over it. Andrew Friedman, science editor at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.